A warning, this episode features dramatizations of violence, including graphic descriptions of blood and gore. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Also, something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single legend about Tezcatlipoca. Today's episode combines details from Aztec myth, history, and cosmology for dramatic effect. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Each week, we dive into one of mythology's most terrifying beasts to discover where they came from, what fears they represent, and how their legends live on to this day. Today, we're telling the story of Tezcatlipoca, the Aztec jaguar god of darkness. For more than 15 million Aztecs in ancient Mexico, no deity was more feared than Tezcatlipoca. But what makes him all the more fascinating is how his story extended beyond myth to play a crucial role in the end of the Aztec Empire. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up, we'll delve into the dark mystery of Tezcatlipoca. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The Aztec Empire's entire cosmology was based on the everlasting war between light and shadow. On the side of light was the feathered serpent Quetzalcoatl, the god of knowledge, and on the side of shadow was his brother, the jaguar Tezcatlipoca, sometimes associated with dark magic and discord. But Tezcatlipoca is not purely an evil being. In the Aztec language of Nahuatl, his name translates to smoking mirror, and he's often depicted alongside an obsidian mirror. Obsidian is a shiny, jet-black form of volcanic glass and a key element of the jaguar mythos. 
To the ancient Aztecs, obsidian was a mysterious, almost sacred object. Warriors and kings adorned themselves in jaguar skin and carried obsidian blades to honor Tezcatlipoca. According to some stories, shamans would gaze for hours into obsidian disks as a way to gain insight into the dark corners of their psyche. The closer they got to their shadow self, the closer they were to Tezcatlipoca. The story of Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca's struggle was told in a cycle of endless creation and destruction over the course of five ages. Each one saw a different god assume the role of the sun. The god in the position of the sun would ultimately be overtaken by the other god, and the world's population would be destroyed and recreated. Stories of Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca were so influential that they affected Aztec politics. Adorned with the same jaguar skin associated with Tezcatlipoca, Emperor Montezuma II was often seen as a god in the eyes of his subjects. When the Spanish invaded Mexico in 1519, some say that Montezuma assumed Spanish leader Hernán Cortés was Quetzalcoatl reincarnated. This was due to the fact that Cortez was white, a color most often associated with Quetzalcoatl. Though this may not be true, the bloody conflict between the Spanish and the Aztec would prove to be no less apocalyptic. So apocalyptic that a dark, feline god had to lend his people a helping hand, or claw. Captain Fernando de la Cosa found himself alone in the jungle. He could not remember how he got there or why, and his surroundings gave him few clues. It was so dark, the young captain could barely make out his hand in front of his face. That's when he heard it. He turned and saw an enormous jaguar bare its teeth. By the time he drew his sword, it was already too late. <laughs> Fernando woke up breathless, his cot soaked with sweat. For the last few days, he'd had the same nightmare. Whenever he tried to close his eyes, the jaguar was there, waiting for its prey. Only tonight, it felt more real than it ever had before. He swung his legs over the side of his cot, his heart still racing. Sleep would be impossible tonight. So Fernando left his quarters, deciding to take a walk through the empty streets of Tenochtitlan. The Spanish captain made his way toward the city center, arriving at the Aztec temple, a massive pyramid made of stone. He looked up the steps and could not believe his eyes. Looking down at him was the unmistakable figure of his young daughter, Isabella. He rubbed his eyes and told himself that his exhaustion was playing tricks on him. His Isabella lived an ocean away in Spain, yet there she was he had to see for himself. The captain raced up the stairs and touched her cheek. He expected his hand to pass right through her, but it didn't. Isabella looked up at him, her big brown eyes concerned. She asked if he was all right. Fernando lifted her up and held her close. 
After all the time he'd spent away from home, he couldn't believe he was holding his daughter again. He breathed in the scent of her little head and basked in the familiar feeling of holding her in his arms. Then, finally, he let her go. He crouched down and asked what she was doing there. Isabella gave him a playful smile, then ran into the temple. It was clear she wanted him to follow. Inside, the stone temple was crowded with newly erected crosses and statues of the Virgin Mary. Below them, the ground was littered with the shattered remains of native idols the Spaniards had yet to discard. Only one Aztec object remained perfectly intact, a round disk of obsidian that hung on the wall. The captain approached the large volcanic glass. He touched the surface, then gasped when he saw Isabella staring back at him from the other side. Her playful smile transformed into a malicious grin. Isabella began to convulse. Her teeth turned to fangs and her hands became claws. He watched in horror as they tore through his daughter's skin to reveal a hideous dark shape beneath the flesh. Now a fearsome jaguar stared back at Captain De La Cosa. The captain barely had time to scream before the jaguar burst through the mirror. Just minutes later, another Spaniard ran up the temple stairs. Hearing his captain's screams, Diego Marquez, the captain's friend and protege, rushed to the temple's inner chamber. By the time Marquez stepped inside, it was already too late. The captain was nowhere to be found, but he spotted a trail of blood leading right to the obsidian mirror, as if someone had been dragged into it. Days later, Diego Marquez stood quietly in the corner of a damp stone cell, carefully watching yet another interrogation. As news of Captain de la Cosa's disappearance spread, the Spaniards had been outraged. At the time, Tenochtitlan had been left in the control of a cruel governor named Pedro de Alvarado. And until he had answers, de Alvarado was determined to make the Aztecs suffer. As the man who had found the captain missing, de Alvarado requested Marquez personally observe dozens of interrogations, each as brutal as the last, but this one was like none Marquez had seen. Tisok was a local merchant, and rather than act defiantly or deny knowledge of the captain's whereabouts, as many other Aztecs had done, he was calm. Marquez watched him from his corner of the stone cell, observing the way Tisok looked back at his interrogators unflinchingly. Somehow, the man looked familiar. Through an interpreter, Tisok told the room of Spaniards that he had a clue as to the captain's whereabouts, but he would only provide the information in exchange for his family's safety. The soldiers hesitated, unsure if the strange man could be trusted. As they did, Marquez was startled to find that Tisok had turned his intense gaze from his interrogators to him. T. 
T-Soak told Marquez he had no reason to lie. He simply wanted his family safe. The Spaniards exchanged glances and agreed to his terms. And with that, T-Soak told them what he knew. There was an Aztec village many miles away, inhabited by a group of jaguar warriors, the most elite echelon of the Aztec military. If the captain was still alive, it was conceivable that he would be there. Marquez ran through the city streets to De Alvarado's quarters. It was their first promising lead in days. But as he reached De Alvarado's desk and told him the news, the governor was skeptical. He didn't believe the information had much worth. This vague clue was far from the clear answers he'd hoped interrogations would yield. Even if the merchant told the truth, it wasn't worth risking more men to search. Marquez's heart sank. He couldn't bear the thought of writing the captain's wife in Spain and telling her that her husband was gone, that they hadn't even tried to find him. No, he needed an explanation for what had happened and consequences for whoever was responsible. Marquez appealed to De Alvarado's faith. A loyal son of Spain deserved to be saved, he told him. And if he was dead, wasn't he owed a Christian burial? The governor frowned, thinking. Marquez insisted all he needed was a small party of men. They would bring the merchant Tisoak and find the hidden village. D'Alvarado leaned forward in his chair, his eyes sharp. Marquez's proposal was persuasive, he told him. But if they did not return with the captain, the merchant's family would pay the price. The next day, Marquez's party set out into the jungle to find Captain De La Cosa. Marquez did not realize how far Tisok would be taking them. The terrain was too uncertain to traverse on horseback, so they were forced to go on foot. But as they traveled deeper into the jungle, the Spaniards only grew more anxious. Some swore they saw dark figures moving through the trees. Their weapons were always at the ready. Marquez watched Tisok carefully as he led them through the brush. He began to resent the man's strange, calm demeanor. And soon, a new paranoia wormed its way into his mind. He believed the Aztec was leading them right into a trap. As the men settled to make camp for the night, Marquez cornered Tisok and the interpreter. As Marquez's accusation was translated, Tisok's eyes narrowed. Through the interpreter, he told Marquez that just because they thought him a savage didn't mean he was stupid. He was leading them to the village, for he knew what the conquistadors would do to his family if they failed to return. Marquez couldn't deny that he was right. On the third day of the journey, they were already low on supplies and had no idea how much farther they had to go. A few men wondered if it would be wise to turn back. It was likely, they insisted, that the captain was already dead. Marquez felt his anger surge. He told them they would be damned to hell if they turned back now. One of the men spoke up. Have you forgotten the things we've done since we arrived on this land? If we are not already damned, surely hell means nothing. 
the other men grumbled in agreement, and then some began packing up their supplies. Before Marquez realized what he was doing, he drew his pistol and aimed it at the soldiers. He screamed at them not to move another step. Marquez reminded them of the orders they were given by De Alvarado. If they turned against Marquez, their superior, it would be treason. The men gaped in disbelief. One man called his bluff. Marquez wasn't stupid enough to kill them and add one more sin to an already staggering list, he said. Marquez looked at his men, their faces a mix of horror and defiance. He was outnumbered, and shooting his own men would be pointless. He lowered his pistol, but kept his voice grim. The cowards who wished to return home could do so, he told them. The faithful and the steadfast would remain on the journey. As the men packed their things and filed off, all but two Spaniards, Tisok and the interpreter, remained. It wasn't much, but it would have to do. The day wore on, and night began its descent. Soon the party heard the distinct cracking of branches. They froze, their weapons at the ready. But the only sound that filled the night was their own breathing. They stood still for what seemed like an eternity. Tisok laughed as if he were amused by the men's fear. Marquez aimed his pistol at the Aztec merchant, but kept an ear to the trees. Whatever was approaching them was getting closer. Marquez turned away from Tisok and the interpreter for a moment to prepare for whatever awaited them. But when he turned back, Tisok was gone. Then a flurry of yellow and black lunged from the bushes, tackled the interpreter, and ripped out his throat. Coming up, Marquez meets a mysterious god. Listeners, this month marks 60 years since John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of the United States, ushering his already prominent family into the highest enclaves of political power. But behind their storied successes lie secrets and scandals so severe, if it were any other lineage, they would have been left in ruin. This January, to commemorate this iconic milestone, dig into the dramas of a real-life American dynasty in the Spotify original from Parcast, The Kennedys. This exclusive series from Spotify features your favorite ParCast hosts, including me, covering every angle of the Kennedys from shows like Conspiracy Theories, Unsolved Murders, Crime Countdown, and others. Assassinations and conspiracies, corruption and cover-ups, international affairs, and extramarital ones, too. Examine all of the Kennedy family's most controversial moments, all in one place. You can binge all 12 episodes of this limited series starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Follow The Kennedys free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. The jaguar was the most fearsome predator known to the Aztecs, and Tezcatlipoca, their most terrifying god. It's only natural that Tezcatlipoca's nahual, or animal form, was the jaguar. But Tezcatlipoca represents much more than predatory darkness, and characterizations of him are often complex and contradictory. He's both a creator and destroyer, a bringer of justice and an agent of chaos. This was the case during the first age of creation, when his brother Quetzalcoatl forcibly replaced him as the sun. As vengeance, Tezcatlipoca sent jaguars across the globe to devour the giants that then populated the earth. His status as a shapeshifter and master of dark magic was also well known. During the second age of creation, Tezcatlipoca transformed people into monkeys as punishment for their perceived barbarism. However, other accounts claim it was Tezcatlipoca who drove the people to barbarism in the first place in his quest for revenge against Quetzalcoatl for replacing his kingdom. Whatever the truth was, the Aztecs knew Tezcatlipoca was a god to be feared, for he could change reality in terrifying ways. Marquez fired at the beast as it snarled and feasted on the Spanish interpreter. The man cried out before his voice was cut off by a sickening crunch. Marquez could barely track the chaos. Blood and torn limbs littered the jungle floor. His pistol empty, he backed up against a tree and watched in horror as the interpreter's head was chewed in half, an eye left dangling from its socket. One of the jaguars turned from the bloody mess and faced Marquez. It approached him, licking its lips. Marquez closed his eyes and prayed, waiting for his grisly end. But then all he felt was the wind blow through the trees. He opened his eyes. Just like Tisok, the jaguars were gone, but the body of his interpreter still lay before him, and Marquez was covered in his blood. He was all alone now, deep in the jungle. Hopelessly, he called out to Tisok again and again. That's when he heard a voice come from the woods. In perfect Spanish, it said, He is here. Marquez turned to see a man step out from the trees. He had the same face as Tisok, but his body was different, taller. He wore a fanged jaguar skull on his head, and a belt of jaguar skin hung around his hip. A black stripe was painted across his eyes, and in the center of his chest was a disc of obsidian. A chill ran through Marquez as he stared at this strange figure. He felt as though this man knew every shameful secret he'd ever tried to bury. 
When he spoke next, his voice trembled. Who are you? The man whispered, Look within. There you will find me. Marquez gazed into the obsidian disc on the man's chest, and everything went black. Marquez awoke in a jail cell with no idea how he'd gotten there. He had a splitting headache and a vague recollection of a dream he'd just had. Jaguars attacked him and his interpreter. There was something else there, too. Someone he couldn't place, but the memory felt like it had been carved out of his mind. Marquez looked through the bars and saw a guard, but it wasn't an Aztec. It was a fellow Spaniard. He called to him, where am I? The guard scoffed. Perhaps the priest can enlighten you. He's on his way to read you your last rites. Marquez asked if he was joking. The guard simply laughed and walked away. For hours, Marquez sat in his cell, scouring his mind for any clue of what had happened to him. The jungle, his men, the jaguars, and then blackness. No matter how many times he went through it, he couldn't remember anything through that darkness. But soon he heard a rapping sound at the bars of his cell. The guard was back. This time with a priest, Marquez demanded again that he tell him his crimes, but the guard just walked off, leaving Marquez alone with the priest. Marquez turned to him, hoping he might be sympathetic, but when he saw the man's face, his blood went cold. It was the man from his dream, an Aztec, the one he couldn't recall. The priest greeted Marquez with a pleasant smile. Hello, my son. Are you ready for your confession? What are you doing here? Marquez demanded. Who are you? The priest replied, I am here for your last rites. It is time to make peace before your Lord and seek salvation, for tomorrow you will be executed for your crimes. Marquez's mind reeled. This man wasn't who he appeared to be. He asked once more, his voice low, Who are you? The priest smirked. It depends on who you ask. The Aztecs call me Tezcatlpoca, but even they disagree on who or what I am. I am here because there is something very wrong with you, a part of you that you do not allow yourself to see. Marquez then recalled something from the dream. The captain, his friend. He asked the strange man, this Tezcatlpoca, where the captain was. He replied, do not worry. If you do as I say, I'll allow you to see him. But first I need you to look at my face. What do you remember? Marquez answered slowly as the memories began to resurface. Your name was Tisok. You were worried about your family. You agreed to help us in exchange for their safety. And that's all I recall. Tezcatlpoca clucked his tongue. Very disappointing, my son. When Marquez insisted that he told him all he knew, Tezcatlpoca replied, We both know that is not the truth. 
With that, the priest waved his hand, and suddenly Marquez found himself back in the center of Tenochtitlan. Marquez was surrounded by people, mostly Aztecs, but there were also Spanish guards stalking through the crowd. He looked up at the temple and saw himself and Captain de la Cosa at the top of the stairs, watching over the Aztecs. The locals were celebrating the Aztec festival of Toshcatl, an annual event during which the rite of Tezcatlpoca took place. Marquez hadn't recognized the name back then. From within the crowd, he marveled at how joyful the Aztec were. Scores of unarmed men, women, and children had gathered to dance and sing in the streets. But Marquez couldn't enjoy it for long. He knew what was coming next. All he could do was watch as the Spanish soldiers in the crowd drew their weapons. Marquez saw his past self and the captain burst into one house, a small hut that belonged to a merchant. As he followed them in, Marquez saw the familiar face of Tisok huddled with his wife and son and watched his past self and the captain approach the family with their swords drawn. Tisok's adolescent son grabbed a nearby dagger and rushed the captain, but the captain stabbed the boy in the gut and let him fall to the floor. The boy's mother screamed and threw herself at the two Spaniards, but Marquez watched helplessly as his past self grabbed the woman and slit her throat. Tisok kneeled down in the blood of his family. Anger filled the merchant's eyes. He began to repeat one word over and over, a muttered prayer that Marquez and the captain couldn't understand then, but which Marquez recognized now. Tezcatlpoca, Tezcatlpoca, Tezcatlpoca. It was the last word the real Tisok uttered as Marquez watched his past self bury his sword deep into the merchant's chest. As soon as the merchant's body hit the floor, Marquez was back in the jungle, far from Tenochtitlan and the horrible sins he'd committed. Across from him sat the real Tezcatlpoca. He was no longer a priest, nor a merchant. Now he wore the skin and skull of a jaguar again. A stripe of dark paint extended across his eyes, and the obsidian disc lay on his chest. Marquez's voice shook as he spoke to the man that resembled Tisok, but called himself Tezcatlpoca. I remember now. I killed you. I killed your family. Tezcatlpoca sighed. And yet when I joined your search party, you said nothing. Marquez shook his head and whispered, I forgot. Tezcatlpoca spoke, no one really forgets. They just choose not to remember. They like to imagine that they were always good and others were always evil. So they cut off the parts of themselves they'd prefer were forgotten. I will admit that even I have done the same, but you can't even face the pain you've caused. Marquez countered, 
I have only ever served my God and my country, and I know what you truly are. You are a demon, and you ask your people to sacrifice innocence in your name. Tezcatlipoca laughed. Does your God not ask the same? For a moment, Marquez had no response. Then he asked, Are you Tisok? Tezcatlipoca smiled. In a way, I am all of you. Your secrets, what you dream and dread, what you destroy and create. I suppose a part of Tisok's spirit desired to see you with his own eyes, just as a part of you desired to look away. Tezcatlipoca's eyes narrowed. But I wished to see you as well. You killed my worshippers. You desecrated my temples. You destroyed festivals held in my name. I spared you, the most zealous of your people, to be an example, so that you can witness what I am and bring your leaders my message. Marquez hesitated. What message, he asked. Tezcatlipoca's voice lowered. Leave this place and never return, or be sacrificed as offerings to my glory. Marquez's heart dropped. He couldn't leave, not without his captain. He demanded to know where he was. Tezcatlipoca replied, his voice flat. He was tested, just like you, but I did not find him worthy, so I sent him to a place with no name, where the light will never find him. You told me I'd see him again, Marquez cried. Tezcatlipoca smirked. Perhaps you will. A deafening ring pierced the air. Marquez covered his ears, but it didn't help. The sound seemed to radiate from the obsidian mirror on Tezcatlipoca's chest. Marquez stared at it and was hypnotized once more. Marquez found himself motionless in a great black void. Out of the darkness before him, a massive jaguar appeared. Like Tezcatlipoca, it had a black stripe across its eyes and an obsidian disc on its chest. Its claws were made of the same dark volcanic glass, and so were its razor-sharp teeth. The jaguar roared and rushed forth. Marquez knew it was about to tear his heart out. He held his arms out and shouted, Wait! Please, spare me, and I will obey your command. Whatever it is, just tell me, and I will do it. Marquez's heart pounded in his ears as the jaguar slowed to a stop and smiled. Up next, the Spaniards discover the fate of Diego Marquez. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now back to the story. Few battles between the Aztecs and the Spanish matched the brutality and bloodshed of the Toshcatl Massacre of 1520. Before the massacre, Governor Pedro de Alvarado feared the conquered Aztecs were on the brink of insurrection. De Alvarado had banned human sacrifice, but he believed the outraged Aztecs would continue their traditions regardless of the law. The governor formulated a plan to be set into motion during the yearly festival of Toshcatl. While the Aztecs honored their god, de Alvarado is thought to have ordered his men to kill every last person who attended. The Spanish account of this massacre claims the violence only began as an act of self-defense and to prevent a human sacrifice at the festival. Indigenous accounts describe the events much less charitably and much more honestly. They depict the Spaniards shutting the city gates and laughing while they cut down unarmed festival goers and spilled their entrails into the streets. The Spanish broke into Aztec homes, as well as the Great Temple, to kill anyone they came across. The Aztecs were just trying to honor their god, and so were the Spaniards. The invasion of Mexico cannot be separated from its religious motivations. Cortes was horrified by the human sacrifices and idolatry of the natives. He was determined to root out their primitive beliefs and convert them to Christianity. He ordered idols of the gods to be smashed in front of worshippers and then replaced them with statues and altars of Christian crosses and the Virgin Mary. Any Aztec who didn't embrace Christ was slaughtered. But these actions would have severe consequences for the Spaniards, unless they could be convinced to repent. A frightened, shriveled figure stumbled through the front gates of Tenochtitlan. He was starved and covered in dry blood. Tattered clothes hung from his thin body. When he collapsed in front of the city's Spanish guards, they realized that it was Marquez, and he was clutching an obsidian disc in his hand. While doctors tended to Marquez in his quarters, he received a visit from Governor Pedro de Alvarado. The governor asked what happened to the missing captain and the others who had stayed on the rescue mission, but all Marquez could utter was one word, gone. Marquez could have said more, but fear gripped his heart. He knew if he told him the truth about Tezcatlipoca, they'd think he was mad. But De Alvarado did not accept this one-word answer. De Alvarado threatened Marquez. He told him that the soldiers who had returned said Marquez turned his gun on them in a maddened frenzy. They claimed he acted erratically and was willing to listen to an Aztec over the concerns of his men. 
The governor's eyes narrowed. He demanded to know how he was able to return, covered in blood, but without a single scratch on his body. Whose blood was it? Marquez didn't know how to answer. He knew Delvarado would never believe what had happened in the jungle, but Delvarado gave Marquez an ultimatum. Tell him the truth or be hanged. Marquez's heart pounded in his chest. He knew he had no choice. He told De Alvarado about his encounter with Tezcatlipoca, about the jaguars, and about the obsidian, and what the god had showed him. Then he did what Tezcatlipoca had told him to do. He begged De Alvarado to abandon the city and return it to its rightful Aztec owners, before it was too late. As Marquez feared, De Alvarado didn't believe a single word. Either Marquez was lying, or he'd truly gone insane. Marquez sat up in his bed and insisted, I may have lost my mind, but I have found the truth. Here, look into the disc and see the evil that lurks within it. De Alvarado furrowed his brow and took the disc. He stared into it, and Marquez swore he saw the Spaniard flinch. But then De Alvarado's jaw tightened, and he looked up to say, All I see is my reflection in the disc, and a liar before me. De Alvarado tossed the disc over his shoulder, and it smashed on the ground. Marquez was placed in solitary confinement. De Alvarado gave him one last day to tell him the truth. But if he failed to provide a real answer, he would be executed. In a cell once again awaiting an inescapable fate, Marquez fell to his knees. He prayed to God for salvation, crying out that he was the Lord's loyal servant who had sacrificed so much in his name but no one responded. And when Marquez closed his eyes that night, desperate for a moment's rest, all he saw were flashes of Tisok's slain family and the jaguar devouring his heart. Early the next morning, as the glimmer of dawn was just piercing the darkness, Marquez awoke to see a familiar figure in the cell. It was Tezcatlipoca. Marquez pleaded with the god, claiming he had done what Tezcatlipoca asked, but he couldn't convince the other Spaniards of Tezcatlipoca's menace. Regardless of the outcome, he had fulfilled his side of the bargain. Not yet. Tezcatlipoca said quietly. He handed Marquez an obsidian dagger and said, You know what you must do to make things right. The fiery determination that once defined Marquez sparked one last time. He told Tezcatlipoca firmly he would not take his own life. If he did, he would never find salvation in the eyes of his god, the true god. Tezcatlipoca laughed. He told Marquez he was already damned, and the jaguar could make the time between now and his execution feel like an eternity. He could break even the strongest minds, and Marquez wasn't that strong anymore. 
Marquez stared at Tezcatlpoca unflinching. Do your worst, Marquez told him. Tezcatlpoca smiled. If that is your wish, so be it. Whatever eternal torment Diego Marquez faced in the darkness that night was beyond his ability to endure. When a guard patrolled past his cell, all he saw was his prisoner curled up in a ball on the ground, weeping and whispering the phrase, I repent, over and over. The next morning, they found Marquez dead in his cell. His throat was slit, and an obsidian dagger rested in his hand. The horror Marquez saw in the pitch-black void would forever remain unknown. But Tez Catalpoca was not finished. The night after Marquez's death, a strange chill swept through the city, and the Aztecs rose up against their Spanish captors. Under cover of darkness, Aztec warriors raced into the chambers of the Spanish captains and attacked. Obsidian blades and swords clashed, arrows and musket blasts were fired, and blood flooded the streets of Tenochtitlan once more. After hours of fighting, the Aztecs pushed the Spaniards out of the city. De Alvarado barely escaped with his life. Other Spaniards weren't so lucky. For the Aztecs, it was a night of victory, just as Tezcatlpoca had once reclaimed the earth from Quetzalcoatl, they had taken back their home from its conqueror. The Aztecs' attack on their Spanish captors was a real event that occurred on June 30, 1520, partly in response to the Toshcatl massacre. The Spanish would later refer to the night of the Aztec attack as La Noche Triste, the Night of Sorrows. It was anything but sad for the Aztecs, who finally reclaimed their home. But like Tezcatlpoca's reign, this victory only lasted for a time. Cortes eventually recaptured Tenochtitlan, this time permanently. In the 17th century, the Spanish would drain the lake upon which Tenochtitlan was located and build the foundations for what would become New Spain. With the advent of the Christian colonial era, Aztec gods like Tezcatlpoca and Quetzalcoatl faded into the recess of memory. Nevertheless, Tezcatlpoca remains a frightening and fascinating example of the complex relationship between a people and their deities. The jaguar god is feared and celebrated, as he is equally capable of helping and hurting those who worship him. He's as complex as his followers, and in this way, he helps them reflect on their own actions quite fitting for a god nicknamed the Smoking Mirror. If there's anything we can learn from the legend of Tezcatlpoca, it's that everything comes and goes in cycle. Life gives way to death, then life again. Civilizations rise and fall. So perhaps Tezcatlpoca is just biding his time for now, gazing out from his obsidian mirror and waiting for the day we're tempted to look back.
Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Tezcatlipoca, amongst the many sources we used, we found Tezcatlipoca, Trickster and Supreme Deity, by Elizabeth Baquedano, extremely helpful to our research. If you'd like to help the indigenous communities of Mexico during this difficult time, please consider showing your support to the Mujeres de Maíz Opportunity Foundation at mujeresdemaizof.org. The foundation is a nonprofit organization created to empower the indigenous women of Chiapas, Mexico, by providing access to basic healthcare services and various educational and economic opportunities. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Drew Marin, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Fact, fiction, fame. Discover the real story behind one of history's most formidable families in the Spotify original from Parcast, The Kennedys. Remember, you can binge all 12 episodes starting on Tuesday, January 19th. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify.